The Steve Lobby Agency presents The Christian Publishing Show, a podcast for writers who want to advance Christ's kingdom using the written word. Here's your host, Thomas Umstadt Jr. Our guest today is an award-winning screenwriter. His first feature film, To End All Wars, was quite the movie and one that I enjoyed watching back when I was in college. Uh, it's a World War II movie, but also has some powerful Christian themes. And he's also a best-selling author of The Chronicles of Nephilim and the new series Chronicles of the Watchers. Brian Gadawa, welcome to The Christian Publishing Show. Thanks for having me on, Thomas. So, uh, why did you start writing fiction? Ha, huh, why did I? Hmm. Well, I got to tell you, I actually started out as a Hollywood screenwriter. I still am, but um, many years ago, that's been that was always a dream of mine, and um so I've been driven by that world of storytelling. And about, you know, eight, nine years ago or so, actually, I wrote a script for a movie based on a Bible story that I thought, okay, this has never been done before. I started doing this intense Bible research and found some really fascinating stuff I, uh, that I hadn't seen before, but it was very biblical, but very unique. And, and I thought, this is a fascinating story, and it would be the perfect thing that Hollywood would love because it has fantastical supernatural stuff that Hollywood would like, but it will also be a Bible story that, that religious people would like. So I thought, hey, man, you know, big per, the perfect uh, four-quadrant uh, storytelling, uh, make a lot of money, all that kind of stuff, and uh, kill two birds with one stone, you know? And uh, that story was about Noah. And this, the story was called Noah Primeval. And I wrote the script, and I was going around and trying to get interest. And I'm, I'm not very, uh, I'm not a big A-list writer or anything, so I didn't have big contacts. But, and then, of course, I, I heard that Darren Aronofsky was making his movie. And I thought, oh, darn it, he's probably going to get it made. So I thought, well, how can I get my story out? Because I felt like it was so cool and I didn't want to sound derivative or look derivative. And I thought, well, you know what? I always wanted to um, eventually write novels and I guess this is my chance. I'll write a novel. And I heard about self-publishing. So this is like, you know, nine years ago. I, or no, about 10. And I heard, you know, self-publishing is an up and growing thing. And, and, you know, I'll try to get an agent and a, and a publisher first. But if I don't, I won't waste my, I won't have to be wasting time writing the story. I can still get it out. So I did that. And I, I published Noah Primeval as my first novel. And so it was sort of a way to get a story out that I thought I couldn't get out as a movie. But then when I did that and I wrote my first novel and, and, you know, so it was the first experience. It was such an inspiration to me that I thought, and, 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 and I discovered there wasn't just one story here. There was at least four stories I could tell of this cool story thread that goes through the Bible called Chronicles of the Nephilim. Of course, it ended up being more like uh, 12 novels. <laughs> but uh, at the time, I thought, okay, there's more to this, and, and let me pr pursue this. And the Noah novel became so successful that it spurred me on, and now it's my day income. It's basically, you know, that's, where I, that's how I make my living, and I still write movies but that's more on the side now. And uh, yeah, that's sort of how it got, got me going. And, and the interesting thing was, was I kind of write, because I write from a Hollywood perspective, I have a lot of screenplay influence on me, you know, so I, I don't write like, um, you know, I write more fast paced. I write, you know, more concisely. You have to be economical as a screenwriter. Um, and so if, if you're a reader who wants to read long, in-depth, uh, uh, you know, thoughts of a, of a, of a character that, 
mind focuses more on action. I have thoughts, of course. I, I go through internal dialogues and monologues and such. But but um, I stress the story and I stress action and choices of the characters for revealing who they are. And so when you read my novels, it's kind of like, you know, kind of like you're watching a movie in a way. There you go. Did you beat the Noah movie to market? Oh, yeah, by, by a year or, or so. And uh, and I was I was, of course, grateful to realize that it was not remotely like mine. I mean, maybe there was one or two rough elements, but his interpretation was so completely different that uh, I, I felt very happy and satisfied, you know, so. But then, like I said... And it wasn't the four-quadrant success uh, that it could have been. <laughs> yes. No, and... and Mostly because it didn't appeal to uh, its primary market, which is, of course, religious people who believe the Bible. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't uh, retell a Bible story where God's a villain, <laughs> you know, and, and, and his hero is a bad guy who wants to murder people. You know, it's like that, that, that's not going to appeal to the religious people who really believe in that story. And that was his biggest mistake of all. Because, I mean, I thought it was, you know, on, on some levels, it was very creative and very interesting the way he did the flood and all that. You know, it was, you know, well done in that sense. But um, his storytelling didn't appeal to the primary market. Visu- visually, it was very striking. And this is a mistake that Hollywood makes a lot, where they take an intellectual property in, I'm using that term kind of loosely with the Bible, obviously, because no one owns the intellectual property of the Bible. But they'll take some kind of story world and then they'll try to fix it. And, you know, which is like all you're going to do is alienate the audience, right? You don't fix Star Wars because the people who don't think Star Wars needs fixing are the fans of Star Wars. You don't fix the Bible because the people who don't think the Bible needs fixing are fans of the Bible. If you do a good enough job honoring the source material, the people, the core fans who will watch it on opening night at midnight, the, the ones you get for free if you honor the source material, will tell their friends and bring their friends and you'll have a hit like The Passion of the Christ. <laughs> and by the way, you know, the problem with the Noah thing wasn't that Christians don't, don't have imagination, they don't like creative license. Almost nobody had a problem with the creative license element, um, including myself, you know, um, and that's kind of the cool thing. Christians are actually far more open-minded than what people actually think. Uh, they had, it wasn't about the creative license. It was about the core meaning of the story. You know, that's where you can't depart. They're willing to have giants and, and you know, angels and monsters and all kinds of stuff, but you don't make God and Noah into bad guys. That's exactly. the bottom That's pretty simple and elementary, but yeah, you're right. I agree. It, but it, but they, And yet they make the mistake every year with some yeah. different <laughs> property that they buy. Yeah, they, they did it with Exodus, Gods and Kings. You know, they make a Moses story, right? And there was a great opportunity there. I actually thought it was really cool, like the way they did the, you know, the Red Sea and stuff. I thought it was, it was cool. And the, and the, the plagues. But, but the bottom line is, is God is a, a child with temper tantrums it's like you're it's literally the movie was made by atheists written and directed by atheists who hate god and made god out to look like a child with a temper tantrum well duh of course people aren't gonna like it or uh, another good example is the nativity film uh, which came out shortly after the passion of the christ and it was a lot of the same people that worked on the passion and they're like well gosh we made so much money with the passion let's do uh, what's the what's the next most popular story about jesus it's the birth of jesus and they got like all of the little nitpicky details like right on the money 
Like it was a very accurate film, except the heart of it was that it was portrayed as a sad story because the uh, crucifixion was like looming over the story and everyone was sad about the birth and it's like he's being born <laughs> destined to die and the choir of angels was reduced to just like one angel in the sky. It was like they, they it's like they swallowed the camel and the, to sift out a needle. It's like they missed the one most important part of the nativity story, which is the fact that this is a celebration, right? This isn't a sad story. It's an exciting story. That's exactly what I'm trying to do with all my series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, then the sequel, Chronicles of the Apocalypse, and now Chronicles of the Watchers. I am dealing with the fantastical elements of the Bible, the supernatural, angels and demons and stuff like that, and I pull a lot of creative license. In fact, I have to admit that when I first started the series, I was a bit afraid because, you know, as an artist and and as a, uh, you know, I'm a... I'm a uh, traditional evangelical reformed christian i'm i'm you know i'm no heretic theologically but the truth is is i'm i'm a little bit more open minded with the imagination such as an artist when i when i approach the bible and i was worried at first actually that i took some creative license where i thought christians might reject it and you know i i guess i my my view is that they'd be more you know uh, hyperliteralistic or fundamentalistic than i thought they would be and actually they received they received uh, my genre with very open arms. I've been actually very encouraged by it. So let me give you an example. For instance, um, <clears throat> you know, of course, well, angels and demons shouldn't have a problem with that, right? But I also incorporate some other supernatural elements. Like in the Bible, for example, it talks about Leviathan. And some Christians think that's a dinosaur or whatever. But if you if you do a study on Leviathan throughout the text, you discover that it's actually a, a symbolic image that represents chaos. And all ancient Near Eastern cultures used the sea dragon of chaos as a symbol for their god crushing, you know, either destroying or suppressing the sea dragon in order to bring his covenanted order in. And the Bible writers do the same thing. They use that image knowingly as a symbolic reference. And and this isn't to say that all the Bible's myth, you know. No, no. It just means that while they're telling their stories, they're incorporating some of these images to communicate these powerful truths. And so I did that in my novels. But what I did was I kind of made it a little bit more literalistic in order to make it more of a fascinating story. So I've got Leviathan who shows up in my Noah primeval story and he's a little bit more literal, you know, than you might imagine um, uh, in, in order to be part of the story. But as I as the stories progress from the primal primeval history from Noah to Enoch, actually Enoch is first, but in, in terms of the stories. Um, and then I, I go into Abraham. As the stories progress, it the stories also become a little bit more, quote, historical in that sense. And because a lot of the primeval history in, in the Bible is a different kind of storytelling than, say, the storytelling about Abraham or Moses, you know. And so my, my novels try to reflect that. But I still you know, have a heavy focus on the supernatural dimension uh, of the story because that was the one element of the Bible that I think I had sort of, I always believed in angels and demons, but I kind of didn't want to deal with it. And uh, the more I studied it, the more I realized, well, you know, this is more a part of the story than I realized. And so that's what this series does. 
Yeah, that's really good. And, you know, you can get away with a lot of adaptation if you're true to the heart. And there's a term that we use about like being true to the heart of something, kind of understanding something in a fundamental way. And that term is worldview. And it's something I know you've written a lot about, right? Hollywood has a worldview. And that's why these movies, even if they're matching the facts, if they have a different worldview, it just sounds dissonant to people who are looking for that worldview. Whereas, you know, if they make changes, right, they cut whole characters from Lord of the Rings, but it was made by true fans who had the right, quote, worldview, unquote, and the, fan, and the fans that made it were able to connect with the worldview of the fans that watched it, and they got away with all their changes, right? They were given full forgiveness, even for changing beloved characters. They were able to make a case as to why it was true to the heart of the story, the, the reason the way they made those changes. And I think that a lot of authors don't think through their worldview before they start to write a story. Unless the purpose of the story is like an apologetic for a worldview. And yet your worldview affects how your characters see the world. It affects how you write the stories and how you portray it. So talk us through kind of how you approach worldview, almost in terms of world building for your fictional world. Wow, yeah, that's a complex one, but it's a great question because um, it's there, it, as a writer, as a storyteller, there's always the struggle between um, the entertaining side and the meaning side, or you know what what your theme is or what your message is. And of course, you know we've got stories that are too preachy because they're just trying to push their message and they don't understand that you know some writers will feel like if 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 I don't spell it out really explicitly, then people aren't going to get it, you know. And uh, but then you have the other side where it's like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to preach. I'm just gonna try to tell let my imagination go. And they they don't have a good grasp of how well your story can actually unwittingly uh, have have a, a negative influence, even if you don't realize it. If 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 you're telling a story and you're not understanding how worldview operates. So I come at it from saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to study, understand worldview, how, you know, elements of worldview, creation, fall, redemption, philosophy, how all that stuff sort of works. You know, so for example, a humanistic worldview, you know, believes that man is the measure of all things. It, it, it tends to believe that, that, um, the, you know, humanity's main problem is that we have religion, religion, becomes the blinder that keeps us from science and from knowledge and reason, right? And so so the way that you uh, redeem yourself is to get rid of the oppression of religion and then you become the scientific wise man, that kind of thing. That's, that's an example of a, a, a humanistic worldview. Um, and if you look out in the world and you watch stories, movies, books, they're all communicating some kind of worldview, but you won't understand what it is if you don't have an intelligent understanding of worldviews. So first of all, I, I've educated myself extensively on worldviews. What are the different worldviews? There's paganism, there's monism, right? There's, and of course, you know, the Christian worldview, which I would argue is in its most basic form, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You know, the, the, the uh, God created the universe um, to, you know, commune with man. Man fell. Man needs a, to be redeemed, and, and Christ comes and redeems him outside of himself, and that kind of thing. And then one day in the future, God will, you know, restore humanity, that kind of a thing. And it begins now with inside your own person. So that's sort of a basic Christian worldview understanding. And once you have that, then when you're telling your story, 
there's 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 two sides of the story there is a sense in which your imagination drives you you know what you know what what kind of exciting thing can happen next that i wouldn't anticipate you know there's that side of things and then there's your rational side where you're going okay Every choice a person makes reflects what they're going to become and who they are. So if you already have an ingrained understanding of worldviews, my argument is then when you are engaging in the creative imaginative side, you're going to be driven by that understanding uh, sort of consciously or unconsciously. If you don't have a strong understanding of worldview, then you're not going to know what's happening with your story and you won't have a real strong uh, understanding to, uh, message or theme to communicate. Um, so that's kind of where you start. And the only kind of Christian story you'll know how to tell is one that's presenting the crucifixion resurrection. Yes. Because Yes. And, and it, subtracting all the rest of the gospel, right? Because there's more to the gospels than just the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Those are critical. But there are a lot of chapters of Luke before we get to the passion narrative. There's a Amen. lot of chapters of John before we get to the passion narrative. And once you have a Christian worldview, you can start writing to so much more of life in a very Christian way. And as you have an understanding of other worldviews, you can work in characters that have a humanistic worldview or a Gnostic worldview, which I think is, at least where I, in my part of the country, a very popular uh, kind of anti-Christian, almost anti-Christ worldview. And you can have a character with that worldview get to the conclusion, the emptiness, the sadness, the death at the end of that worldview, kind of take them through that journey in a way that is purely showing, not telling, powerful and yet not preachy. <laughs> it's like once you understand worldviews that you get this amazing toolbox to be able to communicate in a much more powerful way while simultaneously being less uh, heavy-handed about it. The way that I talk about it is and I've written books on this because I have struggled myself with try, what I call my aesthetic, you know, and, and, and aesthetic is your theory of beauty. That is, how do you, you know, how do you approach beauty and understand beauty? And um, so the book I wrote was imagine um, two books, actually, Hollywood Worldviews, which explains for Christians how to understand storytelling, particularly related to movies, so that you, you can appreciate and discern the good from the bad. And then my other book is the imagination of God, where I, I go into this element of what I call incarnational storytelling. And what that means is very similar to what you're saying is when you understand that the power of story is to incarnate, not to, um, not necessarily to rationalize or to, uh, to preach, then you'll understand that when you're when you're telling a story of characters who are making choices that reflect uh the meanings and purpose that you're getting to you don't have to have the necessity to you know explicitly explain what you're what you're saying right because the power of the story is in the choices that make and where the choices lead and what are the consequences of those choices and those choices reflect a worldview of how you see the world so let me give you a classic example um um you know you mentioned the, the passion of the christ and i always use this example because i think this is a great one you know when, when mel gibson was going around and getting input from christians before he released the movie he would show it to protestants and uh, the protestants several times had had saw watched the movie and at the end they said that was really great but 
can you put John 3.16 up at the end so that people know? <laughs> and it, to me, that was the perfect example of how Protestants often just don't get it. They don't realize that the whole movie embodied John 3.16. And so, and of course, they even had Isaiah 53 up there anyway. So, I mean, that, that, what more do you need? But, but the problem was that they always felt that if you're not explicitly quoting this Bible verse, you're not really communicating the gospel. Whereas the gospel was communicated through the power of Christ, seeing Christ's suffering was how you understood how our sins are ultimately upon him. And, and you don't actually need that Bible verse, you know? And, and that's what they didn't understand. I do think Christians have a better understanding now. I really do, um, in general, um, because like I said, I've, I've seen that. But yeah, so it's incarnating within your images, within your story, within the choices of the characters and, and who they are and how they see the world um, is, is how you're going to communicate that. So in many ways, I, I say, look, in, a, in, a, in essence, in its simplest form, a, a story when you have a protagonist and an antagonist, you have the protagonist has a way of seeing the world, a view of the world, a worldview, and he's being driven by that. And as we root for the protagonist, we let our guard down in terms of, you know, um, we are supporting him, we are following him with him on his journey. But in every good story, a protagonist even though he's a good guy, he's going to have a flaw in the way he sees the world. And that flaw is going to result in causing problems that are his story that he's journeying through. So as he's journeying through his story, he's got this inner problem that he has to learn about. And and you've got the, the antagonist, and he is the opposing worldview. He sees the world in a different way, and he's opposing the protagonist. And as the protagonist forces him, or as the protagonist is, is uh, fighting the antagonist, he he's brought to the point where he you know loses everything you know he's going to lose everything and he realizes what's wrong with him inside and when he overcomes his internal flaw that's where he gains the outer strength to vanquish the antagonist and that that is the story of redemption in a nutshell and so um the story itself incarnates conversion so you don't have to have you know uh, in order to have Christian redemption, you don't have to have a person in a church with a pastor or a priest praying the sinner's prayer. You know, all that, none of that stuff is needed necessarily in order to communicate that worldview because it's embodied in the hero and the villain's own worldviews in conflict and the winning worldview, the winner, the protagonist who usually wins uh, in, a, in a tragedy he loses. Uh, and But you still learn the same lesson. Don't do this. <laughs> but a... a a, so the hero's worldview is how is how we're 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 we follow with him and we get converted with him and that's the power of story. Yeah, and for those of you who are freaking out, you're like, no, you must quote John three sixteen. I, I would like to share with you some examples uh, from literature of this not happening. And the first is the book of Genesis, right? If God had tasked me with writing the Bible, I'd have been like Genesis 1-1, the Ten Commandments, right? And you shall have no other gods before me. I'd have gotten right to the like core part of the, the message of the Old Testament, especially the early Old Testament. But that's not what God did, right? The whole book of Genesis is one big long narrative, and it's a really 
powerful, compelling narrative. You've seen people making good decisions. You've seen people making bad decisions. You've seen consequences of, of those decisions. And it's compelling. And then you're like, okay, well, now we're in Exodus. We can finally get to some good Ten Commandments stuff, right? It's like, no, for the next 20 chapters of Exodus, it's still more narrative. And 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 then finally, Exodus 20, you get the Ten Commandments, and it, it mixes throughout the rest of the Old Testament narrative and exposition kind of going back. And then reflection, right? Once you get to the prophets, the prophets are reflecting on the narrative that you've been reading through, right? If you haven't read Kings and Chronicles, the prophets aren't going to make a lot of sense, right? It's like, why are they so unhappy? It's like, once you read Chronicles, you're like, oh, I get it, right? It's like the stuff that they did with the temple, not so great, right? And it's not a place for prostitution. I, I understand now. But but it would I wouldn't if I hadn't have had access to that narrative. And even once you get to the Gospels, while the Gospels, again, blend exposition and narrative, because you've got the red letters where Jesus is just telling it like it is, especially in John, there's a lot of that. But in Mark, there's a lot of action, right? Like Mark is the action movie where Jesus is going around healing people and casting out demons and he's doing some preaching, but there's a, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of black letters in the book of Mark. And it's okay, right? Mark doesn't have John 3.16. When Paul presented the gospel, he didn't always use John 3.16. In fact, I think in his sermons, I don't think he ever directly quoted that. So it's not like this one verse is, has some sort of magical properties. And I think we do ourselves a disservice when we shrink the whole gospel down to just one verse, because we're basically shrinking away all of the other things that Jesus said in all of those other books. And there's more to Christianity than just that one verse. Amen. Amen. And and also, too, I think, um, you know, the, there's a power of telling a story, you know, uh, Stories do cannot, let alone should not, have to encapsulate uh, the completeness of the Christian worldview from start to finish. Meaning, maybe a story like if you watch a movie, maybe a movie might just be a, a movie about what a good marriage is like. And from my perspective, in today's day and age where it's very anti-marriage, anti-biblical marriage, if you just have a movie that really shows a good marriage, that itself is enough, you know, because, and even if you look at each individual Bible book, you know, the Bible was, you know, was not all written in one, right? And and individual books were written in specific time periods and gathered together later. But my point is, is, you know, if you look at just Ecclesiastes, that's not going to have everything in it. Now, it's going to have some very powerful messages that do interweave with the West, rest of the Bible. But in that time period, that it, it, or or reading just that book alone, it's it doesn't have everything in it, but it has enough to be truth that is warranted for a story. And that's that's kind of how I see a lot of the stories that I would want to tell. That's right. You have to trust God that while you're digging your well with your story, that he's going to raise up other people that will dig different wells on different topics, right? So instead of digging a hundred wells that go one foot deep on a hundred different topics, and you're trying to teach everything that Christianity has to say about every topic, you're like, no, I'm going to trust that God will raise up somebody else who's more articulate than me 
on forgiveness, let's say, and I'm just going to focus on joy and like how to walk in joy, or I'm, or I'm going to um, write about how to love your enemies, right? Talk about a message that's really needed right now, right? We're, we're ready to kill each other in America. You know, loving your enemies message is really powerful, but there's nothing in loving your enemies that has to do with, you know, living a good marriage. Well, maybe, <laughs> I guess, depending on your marriage. <laughs> um, but you, it requires trust, right? Jesus had a really narrow focus in his earthly ministry. He was really focused on the Jews, and more specifically the 5,000, and more specifically the 72, and the 12, and ultimately the three, Peter, James, and John, that saw him transfigured on the mountain. And that was an incredible level of focus. If I had been Jesus's marketing manager, and thank God I wasn't, I'd been like, Jesus, Judea is great, right? Samaria, that's good. But where we really need you is in Rome. If you could get to Rome and preach the gospel in Rome, we could we could hit the big time. And yet in his wisdom, he didn't do that because he trusted that God was going to raise up Paul and Apollos and the others to take the gospel to Rome. And that ended up being the better strategy. And so for you, if you feel like you know, your story doesn't work because you're not portraying John 3.16, you're hitting some other aspect of the Christian message on some other topic, we give you permission that that's okay. <laughs> there are books of the Bible that don't have John 3.16 in them. Uh, there are 65 of them, as a matter of fact. <laughs> so um, we're, we're running uh, short on time, but I want to ask uh, a few more questions kind of to dig a little bit deeper here. And one of them is, you know, what was your biggest failure in figuring out worldview or in writing, and what did you learn from it? Hmm. Biggest failure? Well, I can, I can, I can speak to the, um, I can speak to the fact that I've always been a, a right brain, left brain, um, bipolar person. You know how like people say I'm either all creative or I'm all rational, and and I've kind of been both, and and that can be a strength, I think, uh, because it helps me to understand both as I'm writing stories, but that also sometimes creates tension, you know, because sometimes I become too uh too explanatory too rational or whatever or sometimes i do let my my imagination go too far and and need and realize oh this is gonna oh if i go down this path with this creative wild thing it might it actually end up communicating something i don't want to communicate you know that kind of a thing and and so um uh so that's been always a constant struggle with me and i think as years went on uh, so I think my biggest failure was this, and I tell the story in in the imagination of God, where it I started out my Christian faith as a very strongly oriented towards apologetics and philo- and philosophy, and because of that, that really helped me understand doctrine well, and um, and I, I still love it to this day. I, I just love apologetics, and I love you know dealing with skepticism and stuff, and but not just fighting it. I actually I love listening to it and learning from opposing viewpoints. Um, but what happened was that created in me a very highly rational spirituality. And I was, I was always a visual artist before I was a writer. So, uh, but I, those two worlds were separated for me and I understood creativity and, you know, and and all that. But when it came to my faith, it was sort of like, I, I still had a struggle with integrating the imagination. And so actually it was with the writing of Noah Primeval. That was that was when I felt like I I freed myself from evangelical chains that 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 had held me down in some ways in my creativity. Um, I, it's hard to explain in words, but I can just say that when that danger of me stepping off and saying, "Wow, I'm going to go off into this imaginative realm," but I've got a lot of mythological understanding, and everything I'm writing has meaning. 
but I was afraid. I started real thinking some Christians might have problems with it. They might fear that. And I said, well, I don't care because I know what's truth. And I know this is my, this is the truth as I understand it. And if they misunderstand it, that's, that's not necessarily my fault. Um, just so long as I seek to be, you know, whatever, as, as clear as I can. But, but that stepping off was a freeing point. So that was like nine years ago where my storytelling, I feel, did actually begin to open up and free me from chains that I didn't realize I had on, my, on me. So I think before that time period, I might have been a little bit more preachy in the way that I was, was uh, uh, thinking of storytelling, you know. Um, but uh, that, that, was the, that was a freeing point for me. Yeah, fear is one of the biggest enemies of good writing. And if you are writing to not be criticized by the critics, you will never write something worth reading <laughs> because it'll be so watered down, it will be so tepid that it lacks the sizzle needed to really attract attention and to get people excited. And knowing who your audience is and who your audience is not is also really important, right? Because you believed at the time, it was your first book, so you didn't know, but you believed that there was an audience out there for that kind of book. And then once it sold like crazy, you're like, huh, maybe this four-book series should be a 12-book series. <laughs> you're like, maybe I can make a living doing this. I've, I found my audience. And you know, as we've said on the show before, the carpenter doesn't just build the house. The house builds the carpenter. And by writing that book, you kind of transformed in some ways from, because you were writing nonfiction before that. Right. A lot of your apologetic stuff. Yeah. And so that kind of transformed you from the kind of logical, you know, here are the five points in the logical construction into a novelist, uh, which is a very different way of approaching an issue. And, and we actually see that same, those two approaches in the Gospels, right? We have these different Gospels from different perspectives, right? We have the book of Luke, which is a scientist and medical professional. And he is, you know, point A leads to point B and leads to point C. And it's uh, somebody like me. I'm like, I really like the book of Luke. And then you have the book of John, which uh, I don't know, you know, it's safe <laughs> it's to like say right brained, left brained for the apostles. But if there was a right brained apostle, I'm pretty sure John would have been the right brained yeah. one, right? Yeah. Like things are happening in all kinds of different orders and all these different themes. And it's very deep and it's very complicated and, and, you know, both of those are gospels and both of those are good approaches. In fact, it's better that we have those two different approaches to the gospels than if we had one super gospel that like harmonized them all. Because we would lose, a, a, if you think of it this way, it's like cream and it's like coffee and a latte, right? You want both the bitterness of the coffee and the creaminess of the cream. And if you just water it down so it's the same, you can't tell the difference, you lose both. <laughs> so if you're coffee, be coffee. And if you're cream, be cream. And um, embrace that because you're not the only message people are hearing. Your book is not being put into a time capsule and it's the only thing people are going to know about Christianity a thousand years from now. That's not what you're writing. You're not trying to write the Bible. We already have a really good Bible. It's great. <laughs> you don't have to try to replace it. Uh, you're, you're trying to do something else. I, I guess another way of putting that, I do think this is really important because um, it, as I've mentioned, it's in, in my book, I, I, I describe it as the battle between word and image. And word represents sort of the rational side, the, literally the words, you know, uh, the, the, the left brain is that, uh, whatever. And then the other side is the image, which is the imagination. And that's, that's like, um, poetry and, and symbolism and all that kind of stuff. And what, what, what happens is that, um, 
or what happened to me was that when I, like I had overemphasized rationality in my spirituality, my understanding. And when I, when I, when I equalized that with imagination and I said there, it's not that one is more important than the other. It's that they are both ultimately this equal, meaning just like Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. If he, if you say he's more God than man, then you're in one, one heretic side of the, what is it? Docetism or Gnosticism, whatever you say, he's more man than he is God. Then you're in the other heretical side. You have to have them equally ultimate. And it's the same way with imagination and rationality. But what that meant was in my storytelling, I then elevated in the simplest way to put it, entertainment is as equally important to me as meaning. So therefore, if I will not read a story, if it's not entertaining, I don't care if it's very meaningful. If it's not entertaining, I, I won't, I won't write it. And I won't read it if it isn't, because it lacks in, in that. And the, by the same token, you know, if something's just this wild imagination with no meaning, it's shallow and it's empty to me. So I don't do eat, but I do both. And when I finally said, you know what, I was always worried about this entertainment thing because the meaning and the message is the most important. When I realized, no, entertainment must be absolutely as important as meaning. That's when my, my storytelling was Francis Schaeffer, uh, famous Christian theologian from years gone by uh, talked about how that's when your the Christian's imagination should fly to the stars because we serve the God of created of creation right and that's when I felt that freedom of flying to the stars was entertainment is valuable yes it must be circumscribed as well within meaning and purpose but you've got to have entertainment and that's when that's when I felt like I exploded creatively because otherwise they won't hear what you're saying, right? You have yeah. to have captured their attention. I don't quote Bible verses very often on this show, but I do want to quote this one. John four twenty four: for God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So yes. there's that mixture, uh, or not, not mixture, combination, I think is probably a better term. Um, we're, we're, we're almost out of time, but real quick, tell us about your latest novel, Jezebel. Yeah, so Jezebel is the first in the series of Chronicles of the Watchers, and the Chronicles of the Watchers is based on this notion that, and it's in the Bible, and it goes throughout all my series, but in particular, I'm focusing on this in this series, and that is this idea that there are watchers or territorial powers, spirits, over the Gentile nations. And um, meanwhile, Yahweh is over Israel. And so that I bring that story element into retelling Bible, the, the Bible stories so that we see what, what, you know, I pull the veil back and say, what might it look like in a supernatural unseen realm with these territorial authorities over these nations, right? Well, of course, there are... Um, there are these these authorities over Canaan until God has to dispossess them right from the land, and so what I did was I I took the god the gods of the ancient nations like Baal and Canaan and Asherah and Ashtart, and I said, well, what if just this was my creative imagination? I'm like, so what if those gods that we hear about in the ancient world they're not just made up things, but they actually do have a demonic reality behind them, but they're not gods in the sense that you might think, but they're really these these watch over the nations that are bad guys bad guy 
rulers over bad guy nations, right? And and so that's the sort of one of the premises. It's based on a theological, you know, understanding, but that was sort of one of the premises of it. So I retell the story of Jezebel and I have everything in there. I have Mount Carmel, I have Elijah and, and all that stuff. And I go into Elijah's faith. I go into Jezebel's subtle undermining of Israel, bringing in Baal worship. But I also show, you know, this is where I get speculative and creative. What might it be like for these gods who are sort of these watchers as the gods Baal, Asherah, and Ashtart? They're in the, behind the curtain sort of battling for control over these various territories as well as the archangels. So you've got the archangels versus the watchers, that kind of a thing. And so I incorporate both of those stories and sort of integrate them together. And... um yeah, that's sort of the heart, the heart and soul of it. But I also think that there is a lot of, shall we say, um, parallels and analogies to the modern day world that are going on. For instance, um, Jezebel brought Baal worship into Israel, which involved human sacrifice or sacrifice, uh, child sacrifice in particular, sacrificing your children. And um, so there's a lot of uh, correlations today with modern day abortion. I think, you know, you can see this kind of stuff in there. Um, again, these aren't uh, preachy, but but they're, the, I guess the point is this: when you write a what we call a period piece or a story about the past, what you're doing is you're so, you're often you're often taking modern understandings and embedding them in the past to show this is where we're ultimately going to end up, right? Because the past leads to the present. So you show how things that are going on today, how they are going on in the past in seed form. And it's the same thing you do with sci-fi, which is the future. You say, this is what's going to happen in the future if we take the logical conclusions of certain things we believe in the present. That's how you address these worldview issues. And, and that's what I do in, in Jezebel. But, you know, so she's got the most wicked, ruthless qu- queen in all of history. But the interesting thing was, is there's a lot of misunderstandings, I think, too. And, and I'll just point out one. You know, one is that we tend to think of Jezebel as this, you know, this, this, uh, how can I use it in, uh, on a Christian um, a show? She's the B word. And, uh, and she's also this, this sexual prostitute. You know, the, the subtitle of the story is called The Harlot Queen of Israel. The problem is, is that term of harlot is used in reference to Jezebel in several New Testament passages and such, but, but that's a spiritual term. It's talking about her as a spiritual harlot, not as a literal harlot, an earthly harlot. So in truth, she probably had a very good marriage with Ahab to begin with, and she wasn't uh, a harlot. She was spiritually so. Why? Because she brought Baal worship into Israel, see? So in my story, I don't have uh, Jezebel as being this, you know, snidely whiplash, you know, uh, (laughs) I'm going to destroy and kill her. She actually has good motives. She wants to bring, I want to bring progress to Israel because they're sort of ignorant people and and we want to bring the sophistication of Phoenicia and Tyre into Israel. See, so I'm sort of showing how elitist mentality can actually end up being the oppressor of of the spiritual people so that's just one way one element of of what i'm dealing with in the story so she's not a cartoon character she's the hero of her own story she just happens to be leading everyone uh to destruction in fact some people were you know uh my editor actually complained when i was first writing the book this is a little bat you know behind the scenes she's like you know you're you're making her look too good and i'm like 
no, that's what I wanted to be in the beginning, because that mean that tells me I was I was writing the story well because nobody, like you said. Every villain is the hero of their own story. And no villain does things because they think it's evil. They do it because they think it's right. So, and this would be a, a story thing uh, for storytellers. It's like, if you want to write good villains, you've got to write them from their perspective and not being judgmental. Now, if you understand how the worldview is going to work in the long run, it allows you the freedom to be able to be more fair with the villain so that they look more realistic to those people whom you want to persuade. And that's that's why the best villains are those which you, if you're watching, you say, well, if I gave them certain, if I agreed with them on certain premises, I could see why they think this way and, and the arguments they're making. And uh, so, yeah, that's the best way to write villains. And I got that from actually studying a little bit about acting. When you act, if you're playing the bad guy, they always tell you, don't judge your character. Don't judge your character because then you'll play them like they're a caricature. You have to actually believe, well, what would I be like if I really thought this was the good? And that makes you the best actor. You have to believe that destroying half of all of the creatures in the universe will make the world a better place. <laughs> like, yes. You're wrong, but you don't realize that you're wrong as the actor. This this topic of uh, villains, I think, really deserves its own episode because there's a lot that could be said here. And and we do want uh, want to go. But um, Brian Gadawa, thank you so much for joining us today on the Christian Publishing Show. This has been great. Thanks for having me. Our sponsor today is the Christian Writers Institute. In the course of the week is the Tax and Business Guide for Authors. I talked about this last week. This is an incredible course to help you as an author know if you qualify for deductions, know which deductions you can take, when and if to set up an LLC, and so much more. This course is on sale, but the sale is about to end. This is your last chance, so use the coupon code MARCH2020 to save over $70 on the course. It's normally $117, but for March of 2020, it is only $39. You can also click the link in the show notes to find out more about the course and to activate the coupon automatically. Thank you for listening to The Christian Publishing Show. For more information and to get episodes delivered to your phone automatically, visit christianpublishingshow.com.